Hey guys, and welcome back to the Female Fitness Formula podcast. As always, I am your host, Sheridan Skye. And as always, I have an incredible guest with me here today, the lovely Sarah King, who I have been following on Instagram for a few years now, actually. And I particularly really wanted Sarah on the podcast to talk about a very, very important topic, which is hypothalamic amenorrhea. Given that I work with women a lot, uh, and given that women are definitely probably more active than they have ever been in the past, I think there is a an increasing need to talk about topics such as hypothalamic amenorrhea. And I, as always, want to get the best people to talk about particular topics, and she's definitely it. So hello, Sarah, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. So I always like to start the podcast with just giving you an opportunity to say who you are, what you do, who you help, just for listeners who maybe don't know you. So like you said, my name is Sarah. You can find me pretty much everywhere online under Sarah Liz King, which is my full name. I am an accredited exercise physiologist and I am a health and recovery coach. So I specifically work with women who are looking to have a better relationship with food, with exercise and with their bodies. They may have come from a past of or currently are working through recovering from an eating disorder, disordered eating, compulsive exercise, or hypothalamic amenorrhea. Uh, I work completely online, which I feel very lucky to do. So I get to see women worldwide, which feels pretty, pretty special. And I also Mm -hmm. run a podcast just like you. Mine is primarily focused on hypothalamic amenorrhea and disordered eating recovery and giving people really practical skills and education and tools to be able to tackle that. Mm, Amazing. And I'm trying to think of where I actually found your Instagram. And I don't know if my memory is completely failing me, but did you previously work for James Smith? Is that where I found you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I used to be a coach for James Smith uh, for a couple of years. And so I was definitely... I really enjoyed the coaching aspect of that and oftentimes they would field people towards me who may have been struggling a little bit with their relationship with food and exercise so it was good to be able to kind of flex my skills in particular with within that population as well. Mm, Yeah and I imagine you probably would have started a lot with working through with people who had particular aesthetic based goals and then you kind of transitioned into this area so I'd love to hear the inspiration what sort of inspired you to niche down into helping women particularly with uh, the struggles that you help them with well I had my own lived experience of both an eating disorder and hypothalamic amenorrhea so I developed my eating disorder what what would kind of be considered quite late in life my late teens And I just thought I wanted to get like fit and healthy and I was just doing the right things to do that. But obviously there is so much misinformation that Mm. all of the changes I was applying to myself came from, you know, a a disordered place, whether I recognized them initially or not. Some of the nutrition changes that I made and the exercise kind of routine that I started to follow became more rigid, less flexible, and kind of took over a large part of my life to the point where I had to stop studying. I just couldn't focus and I had to move back home and I really had to take a pause on life and put my energy into recovery, Mm -hmm. which is never a linear process. It took me several years to refocus and get my life back. Um, I tried lots of different things, eventually did find some more intensive outpatient treatment that really worked, even though it was like the most difficult thing I think I've ever done. But even after that, when I had such a better relationship with food and exercise and, you know, I'd really worked on body acceptance and knowing that know the weight gain was really a healthy thing for me even at that point when the doctors were like yep you've reached your kind of weight that you need to be at my body still didn't have a menstrual cycle and I kept asking questions 
Mm. And at that stage, every doctor that I went to told me like, oh, it's nothing to worry about or like, oh, it's probably PCOS. And deep down, I was kind of like, this doesn't seem like the accurate kind of answer, but I didn't Mm. know any better. Mm. And it wasn't until I went to... It was interesting. It was a talk that was put on by the group fitness gym that I was going to at the time. And this dietitian had written a book and I kind of didn't know what the talk was really about. And then she started speaking about her own experience of losing her period and being really fit and thinking that she was doing all of these healthy things. And she said this word hypothalamic amenorrhea. And I was like, this is what I have. This is what I have. It was my light bulb moment. And so I actually went back to my doctor and I was like, I think I have this and this is what I plan on doing to recover my period. And she was like, sounds reasonable. Let's give it a go. So I had some support and managed to recover my period naturally after not having it at all for 10 whole years. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that's a a massive journey. And I want to I want to highlight something that you kind of mentioned there, Sarah, and it was that, you know, women who particularly struggle with HA or REDS, there's often this potential query diagnosis of PCOS. And the issue is when we are looking at women with PCOS, one of the treatment options is, even in women with lean PCOS, is, well, if we can maybe get you to lose weight, then we could potentially improve that insulin sensitivity, right? And when the issue is that a woman doesn't actually have PCOS, she has HA or REDS, putting her in a calorie deficit is only increasing that energy deficit, isn't it? Uh, And it's interesting that we don't have better diagnostic criteria around HA and it's actually really challenging to get that diagnosis because a lot of doctors will say, oh, it's not really that much of a big deal to not have your period. But as, as we know, it actually is. So let's kind of jump into what is hypothalamic amenorrhea and why is it such a problem for women? So hypothalamic amenorrhea is a form of secondary amenorrhea, which means that you've had your menstrual cycle at some point in your life, and then it goes missing for three consecutive cycles or longer. So three months or longer, you lose your period. And the words kind of give you a clue as to what is causing that missing period. So your hypothalamus is in your brain and it really detects a few key elements that help our body know whether there is an abundance of energy and or too much stress. And that is what has a huge impact on lots of different kind of areas of our body and functions that it does. One in particular is our reproductive organs. So when our hypothalamus senses too much stress and too much stress can come in the form of under eating can come in the form of overtraining it can also come in the form of psychological stress mm-hmm. that it goes doesn't seem like it's a good environment to create a baby we're going to down regulate the production of gonadotropin releasing hormones so the first one and that then gives way to lh and fsh which are the key hormones that help basically produce a dominant follicle and help us ovulate. So all of those downwind effects kind of get put to a halt. They get Mm -hmm. stopped. And there are some other factors that can play into this. We know that there is most likely a genetic component to it. It's not just necessarily a person's body weight. It can happen at any body weight. However, we know there is an energy deficit component to it. And now we know there's kind of even if you have enough energy coming in, where the energy is coming from in terms of your macronutrient intake can also have an impact. So there's lots of different factors at play as to what can predispose a person to developing hypothalamic amenorrhea. But the three key elements are that undernourishing, so undereating, overtraining, so creating that you know relative energy deficiency, and or too much psychological stress, which can either be from external factors or internal factors. So perfectionism, black and white thinking, all of that can also be a form of stress as well. Mm. 
yes, amazing. So when we think about having a healthy or a natural menstrual cycle, why is it so important that women have that? You can kind of think of your menstrual cycle as a bit of a monthly report card. It's there to tell you that, hey, not only is your reproduction a-okay, uh, you're also having sufficient hormone levels which are linked to other key areas of our health as a woman or a person with a uterus. And that is having sufficient estrogen levels for bone health. We know that estrogen is bone protective. Having sufficient estrogen for heart health because we know estrogen is cardioprotective. And then our hormones also come into play with things like our mood, our thyroid function, and so many other things. So it is a signal as a person with a uterus or a vulva or a woman that we are in kind of optimal health. And that is why it is so important. Yes, it is there for fertility reasons if you're choosing you know, to go down that road, but also it's really important for so many key areas of our health. Mm. And I love that you've highlighted that because I have come across women in my time coaching where they don't have a period and the perception is, well, I really want to have kids now anyway. It's not really on my radar and I can appreciate why people have that lens, but you've highlighted some really key things, which is one, bone health and two, heart health. So women experiencing HA are at greater risk of having low bone density and that can increase the risk of things like osteoarthritis and stress fractures in the future. And it's actually not a good thing if we we don't have those levels of estrogen. Uh, so thank you, thank you for naming that. And I think that's probably one of the biggest, uh, I won't call it a, a misconception. It's probably something that women who are not thinking about having children don't really consider when they're not having a natural cycle. Is that kind of have has that been your experience in you know coaching women and helping them to understand how important it is, even if you don't want to have children, that having a yeah. healthy cycle is really important. Yes. And one of the things that I haven't mentioned before, which is probably particularly relevant to active women in particular, is that estrogen is also important for protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about having, if we're a person that really likes physical activity and one of our, we really value having good performance in the gym and outcomes like you know, muscle mass and improving how much we're lifting or how fast we're running and all of those kinds of things. Sufficient estrogen levels is also important for those activities that we engage in. Because even though a person with a missing period might be like, oh, it's fine, like my performance is great, you'll reach a point where it starts to plateau or dwindle because you're actually in your body's, your body's not optimal. Mm. to have the benefits that it could be getting from the stimulus you're placing it under. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And if someone comes to you, Sarah, or they're kind of questioning whether or not they have hypothalamic amenorrhea, what are, where, where do you sort of start with, with your clients? Yeah, like you mentioned before, the pathway to get a diagnosis from a medical professional can be a tricky one simply because it's less known, less talked about. So the first thing I always start with is a little bit of a health history. And are we getting a picture of a person that might be overreaching with the kind of exercise they're doing, both structured exercise and incidental exercise? What does their food intake look like? And you can get clues as to whether they feel like very flexible and inclusive with their intake of all foods or whether they feel really nervous and, and guilty and there are kind of rules and rigidity around what they eat. Um, you might get insight into people's personalities. You know, typically there's kind of like type A, very high achieving personality that's constantly striving to do more and be better. Might give you insight into how that plays out with food and exercise and also stress levels. 
So that's one thing that you can look at. Also getting further investigations is really important. So hypothalamic amenorrhea is a diagnosis of exclusions. So we, we need to exclude a lot of other things that could be causing a person to have a missing period. So problems with our pituitary or thyroid issues or other autoimmune conditions which might be at play. You know, mm -hmm. things like undiagnosed celiac disease can prevent a person from absorbing enough nutrients that they need and that could be impacting their cycle. So we, we can't just always assume that it's simply hypothalamic amenorrhea. So it's working in combination with a really good uh, primary healthcare doctor or your GP to make sure that they can run things like blood tests and other things that will give us clues as to whether it is hypothalamic amenorrhea or whether there might be something else at play. But in saying that, not every person gets a formal diagnosis. I didn't. And mm. it is trusting that if your body has had a period before and these kinds of lifestyle or behavior changes that you made then caused it to go missing, well, that's a big clue that those probably had a huge impact on why your period disappeared. Mm, yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, when we look at hypothalamic amenorrhea. So you said at the beginning of the podcast that it's the you're missing that period or you're not getting that cycle for three consecutive cycles or longer uh but what do you what do you sort of how do you sort of approach a woman who for example has um maybe gone into a dieting phase or she's increased her exercise and her cycle was previously 28 days and then it's 30 days and then it's 32 days 34 days 36 38 days and there's increasing in the, the the length of each cycle is that something that you sort of work with women with or mostly women who are having missing periods for a, a longer period of time yeah so we can pick up on these clues way before it falls into your period missing all together so having long or irregular cycles is something that we kind of classify as menstrual dysfunction so as we kind of move from our teens into our 20s our body gets a lot and we haven't taken something like the oral contraceptive pill or a marina or something else that is a form of hormonal contraception if we have our own menstrual cycle we start to notice a rhythm and a pattern right and if there are disruptions to that if your cycle gets consistently longer or consistently lighter or you miss one one month then that is a red flag that you're probably starting to walk down a road of low energy availability now mm. the body is resilient it tries its best to maintain homeostasis and keep a rhythm of everything going on in our body but it can only be resilient up until a point and mm. it's much, much easier to pick up on these little slips and change some of your lifestyle behaviors than it is to wait until it turns into a landslide of a whole missing period altogether, because it can take a little bit more effort at that point to turn it around and get those cycles to resume. So if you're noticing menstrual irregularities, disruptions to your normal cycle, take note of it it could be due to stress it could be due to your exercise it could be due to your nutrition but those are all things that we can easily easily improve in the moment and hopefully you'll start to notice that your cycles get back on track rather than just blindly ignoring them and letting them go by and then your period goes missing all of a sudden mm, absolutely and i i bring this up because you know i work with women who have aesthetic based goals I do not work with bodybuilders or bikini competitors because, you know, when you're taking your physique or body fat levels to a place that is required to get up on stage, a lot of women do start to see changes in their menstrual cycle, right? But in women who are general population, who are not looking to get up on stage, one of the things that I do monitor is their cycle because if i notice that their cycle is changing that is kind of a i guess like you said a, a bit of a report card to check what's actually happening with that client because please correct me if i'm wrong i think that people have this belief that you have to be 
extremely underweight or extremely lean to experience changes in your menstrual cycle or you have to be training a significant amount and from my understanding and I of course would love your input is that people are actually quite different some people who get up on stage for a bikini comp uh, competition don't lose their cycles some people lose it so much sooner than another person so even general population people can have changes in their menstrual cycle and you kind of alluded to it at the start of the podcast you said I was at a healthy weight but I still didn't have my period so I'd love for you to kind of extend on that and, and your experience with managing that with your clients yeah so like you said there's a wide variety of experiences that people have with some people training really hard or getting really lean and never losing their menstrual cycle and some people being very, very sensitive to changes where they might lose it quite quickly. And that's where that kind of genetic component comes in, where there might be a predisposition for your body to be more sensitive to stress compared to other people. And while it can be frustrating to kind of go like, oh, why me? Why can't I do this? And, you know, have cycles that go on perfectly like the other person over there. You have to kind of accept your own unique genetics and circumstances and go, your body is just trying to keep you alive and it's trying to keep you optimally functioning every day. Mm. And sometimes it does, it is difficult to accept that maybe your weight needs to be higher than you would like it to be mm. in order for you to maintain those regular cycles. Maybe your body's preferred weight to be at is different from the one you'd prefer it to be at. But what is more important to you? Your overall health, your vitality, or your performance, or reaching a certain aesthetic or number? Because if you are that certain aesthetic or number, but your health is compromised, you won't be able to have the longevity that kind of healthy eating and exercise promises. The basis of being a healthy human is making sure that your body is actually functioning optimally and having a regular cycle is part of that for people who have periods. Um, mm -hmm. But it is incredibly challenging, I think, in the environment that we live in because there is so much pressure on women to look a certain way and need to train a certain way. And we might have been congratulated for being a certain size or a certain way for so much of our lives that part of this process can be grieving that things need to be different now and that's incredibly tough to do um, but it is part of the thing that will set you free ultimately and help you let go of that comparison that often weighs us all down mm, and I can imagine that is a really challenging part of what you do as a coach because I imagine that when you're you're helping women through you know having a a natural cycle you probably have a lot of conversations around needing to potentially gain weight needing to potentially reduce the amount of exercise and that I imagine that that would be incredibly uncomfortable for women and they might not be ready to do that immediately. So some of the things that I've kind of heard with, you know, HA recovery is that you can you can approach it in a number of different ways. It can be that slow incremental decrease of X, you know, output, maybe a slow incremental increase in uh, input being that of calories. But then there's also the quote unquote all in method. Can you kind of touch on both of those for me? Yeah, so um, there's no right or wrong way to approach this mm. whole recovery thing and how you get your period back. The one thing I will say is the slow changes or the fast changes, they run on a spectrum. We can kind of see the all-in approach that sits on one side where you kind of really release control allow yourself to feel your body as it needs work on that mechanical eating side of things completely give up exercise and really just kind of put all of your efforts into that and then there's the complete opposite side of things where people tread very very carefully 
They are incredibly calculated about how they increase their nutrition and how they reduce their exercise. Maybe even from a, oh, maybe I can like reverse diet my way out of this. Mm -hmm. And what I say to people is the healthiest option is usually to find the messy middle ground. Mm -hmm. You need to know that moving your body can come from a place of just wanting to kind of get some fresh air and not needing to necessarily push yourself intensely. And we know there are benefits to moving your body and it can be done in a way that is supportive of your recovery. Obviously the amount, the intensity that each person can do, wildly different. But the reason that that messy middle ground is so important is we want people to have that flexible mindset going on into the future. So that if they face some other challenges down the road where maybe they can't stick to this black or white approach to things, that they can adjust and change as they go, whether that be with their exercise, whether that be with their food, whether that be with other lifestyle factors that they have or how much they have going on in their life if there's a big load of stress. And if we constantly just go, it's either this or that, then it makes it very, very hard for people to be confidently making decisions for themselves based on the context of their lives, um, which is why I guess it's really hard to give generalizations around this is what you should do because what is going to work for one person will not work for another person. And we also have to think about psychologically what's going to be the best approach. Not everyone is going to be able to handle going all in and feeling emotionally safe while they do that because of kind of how much change has to happen in a short period of time. So you always think, can I make these changes and will I be able to do them consistently mm. and feel okay and know that I can cope? Because it might take, you know, it's not going to be a number of days, it's going to be weeks and months that might be necessary for your body to start feeling safe again. So pros and cons to the black and white side of things, I always suggest to people it's this messy middle ground that we need to aim for. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was that uh, mental health or psychology plays a massive role in recovery. So if you're taking a person completely out of their comfort zone, then that's probably not going to be super helpful, even if they reach a, you know, quote unquote, healthy weight range or you decrease their exercise quite a lot. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for naming that, because I think it's really, really important to not have that black and white thinking because some women do think oh I have to go all in and I'm not ready to do that and therefore if I'm not ready to do that I'm not ready to make any changes and even slow consistent changes can be really important and then when we think about the notion of what overtraining actually is I believe that people have this preconception that there's just this black and white sort of line that indicates I'm either training optimally or I'm overtraining. And that's not true for, for all people. And it's about, and whether or not you agree, Sarah, I think that you will, but I'm obviously open to your feedback. It depends on the person because I can give the same amount of volume to person A and the same amount of volume and intensity to person B, but I see changes in, you know, person B's biofeedback very quickly and I see that they're not recovering from it and they don't have the ability to handle the the stressor of that training but person a is totally fine so it is very different would you agree it is so it is so different and I you know I now have clients that I train online and all of their programming, I get to see how varied it is. And most of the women who do our programs have either recovered from eating disorders or HA, and now they just want to be strong, healthy humans. But mm -hmm. I even look at my own training and the volume that I can actually take is significantly smaller than some of the women that I program for. But for mm -hmm. me, it is the right amount of stimulus. So we have to be really curious, I think, about... Some of the signs and symptoms that we can get when we're, I think, overreaching, which I feel like overreaching usually happens before we kind of hit that overtraining or burnout mark. Mm. Or it might be the case that maybe it's not the training, but maybe we are under recovering. And that's really the thing that's leading us to kind of have menstrual disturbances or feel really sore and achy and tired, have changes in our appetite and mood and 
performance and all of these kinds of things. So I think once you've had hypothalamic amenorrhea, you need to be really, really curious about how your body responds in different situations and don't judge yourself for it, but just recognize that you might have to be a little bit more flexible in those first kind of six to 12 months of reintegrating training so that you can hit the mark of what's going to be the best volume for you and the best intensity for you so you can get the best outcomes without losing your period again. Yeah, absolutely. And so for clients who you've been working with for a while, Sarah, at what kind of point do you feel it's appropriate for people to consider, you know, talking to maybe an endocrinologist about the potential of, you know, hormone replacement therapy for women who are just not seeing those improvements? Again, that's probably not black and white, but what's sort of your experience with that? Yeah. So I think you have to really consider the background that a person is coming from um, and how they handle any of the changes that you suggest. So um, we know that there are elements of needing to like re-nourish the body, take a step back, modify your training, and actually just kind of slow down in life in general. I find that a lot of the people that I work with come, they're very high achieving, lots going on in life and power to you but this is actually a time where we have to go your body needs some chill out time amongst all of the wonderful things that you're doing so I always say to people that from the moment in time that I kind of tell you that you're hitting all the marks in terms of all the behavior changes that you need to be making it can take up to six months sometimes less but up to six months for your periods to return now if a person needs a slower approach and or we've noticed that they have a few other things that they might be dealing with. So we might see some thyroid dysfunction, we might see some issues with their bone mineral density and they are wanting and needing a slower approach. Seeing an endocrinologist discussing HRT can be hugely, hugely helpful. I actually have a podcast episode coming up in a couple of weeks on HRT with an endocrinologist specifically um, because we know that these lifestyle changes will get you there, but sometimes we need a little bit of extra support during that process if we know it's going to take a little bit more time. That estrogen is, like the name suggests, replacing that which you do not currently have. But the good thing about it is it doesn't suppress ovulation like the oral contraceptive pill. So, mm. you know, we use HIT not long-term, but short-term, until we've made enough changes where we can experiment coming off the HRT and hopefully seeing a natural cycle return for a person. But those are all the kinds of factors that we consider at the time. Mm. Yeah, and I imagine, you know, probably a generalisation, but from what I understand about highly driven, ambitious, perfectionistic women is that they mostly don't really like support in a lot of areas and they're probably quite reluctant to considering HRT. Have you kind of found that in, in your experience or are they mostly open to it? Yeah, I think what often happens with a lot of people who are really, really driven is they live very much in their rational mind. So yeah. everything needs to be a problem that can be solved. It all needs to make sense. However, we are not just thinking beings, we are emotional beings. And so sometimes I find that when there is hesitation towards any kind of treatment, it's really about diving in deeper. Like, what are you nervous about? What mm -hmm. kind of comes up for you on an emotional level? Because that can be the real factor that helps a person not only be more open to things like HIT, but be more open in general to all treatment options. Because it's not that we don't know what we need to do. Most of the time we do. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's our kind of subconscious fears and worries and beliefs that often hold us back from consistently engaging with those or being even opened to them so yeah I definitely find that you have to not just kind of I guess talk about the science but you also have to talk about people's thoughts beliefs where they absorb those from how it's serving them what they're worried about and work on helping them deal with those things so that they can consistently engage with recovery 
Hmm. I call them the stories. What yeah, are the stories? The stories. <laughs> the stories. We're always telling ourselves some kind of story, aren't we? And I, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned as well, Sarah, is going slower. I don't like going slower. I actually really genuinely don't know how to go slower. And when I attempt to go slower, I'm like, I feel like everything is crumbling. It's so much easier to go faster. And I imagine that's probably what a lot of your clients experience that initially that having to go slower and having to adjust the expectation and the standards that you have of yourself will be really uncomfortable to begin with. It's not going to feel like a rest. You're going to be incredibly challenged. And how do you sort of, you know, guide them through that or, or support them in that? Yeah, you're so right. I think sitting still can often feel like you want to crawl out of your skin and you feel agitated and hypervigilant. And it is a skill to learn how to relax for a person that's constantly on the go. And there's mm-hmm. people whose personalities are just like, that's just like, it's just easy for me. I don't have to think about having a full life. And that is very different from a person that has a full life because they are avoiding other mm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are avoiding slowing down because it means that they'll have to face things about like, well, if I'm not being productive all the time, what does it mean about me as a person? Or if I'm not constantly doing things, like what's the point of like, you know, life in general? So I think, again, we have to look at those stories and also go, there's a reason why you feel really agitated when you start to sit because you've attached some kind of idea around slowing down and resting to some kind of belief that it's bad or worse than than doing a million other things or that you're going to melt into a couch of laziness forever. And we have to rewrite those stories and go, actually, if you learn to give your body rest and true rest and not only go like, I'm only allowed to rest this day and never again and never on any other day, but actually you that's when you start to regain real energy because when we have hypothalamic amenorrhea and we're in this state of low energy availability, the body is running on stress. It's running on cortisol. So you have this kind of hypervigilance, which is not your physiological normal. And what happens when you start to reduce your movement and increase your food intake is your body no longer has to run on those higher levels of cortisol. So you start to feel really tired. And that can be really scary to a person who's feeling, who's always felt quite driven and like they can complete a million and one things in the day. And feeling exhausted and not knowing when that's going to end can be super scary. But it is one of those things that starts to turn around once you actually learn that this is a short-term consequence of your body just readjusting. And if you give it that chance to rest, you will actually start to feel energized again. And then energized, that's not this kind of like constant stressy need to run around all the time, but like genuinely feeling good. Mm, yeah, for sure. And it's like, who, who am I if, if I'm not achieving and doing and striving and perfecting? Who am I? And that's that's a really challenging hurdle to overcome and I've I've described it previously when I've been in that place that you know it's it's kind of like I'm in a car driving really 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 fast and because I'm driving really fast I'm missing things that are really important to take notice of and then when you do kind of go into that place where you give yourself permission to go a little bit slower it's not you know I've never been one to be able to not think and not be doing but there's a difference when I give myself the solitude that some of my best ideas come to me and clarity comes to me and I can ask myself uh, you know all the things that I'm doing are these in alignment with my values and the vision that I have whereas when you're just going you're just going and you're like in that car just driving 100 million miles an hour so I, I love that you've kind of highlighted that You may not be a person who can get up in the morning and meditate for 30 minutes and journal for another 30 and then, you know, praise the sun and do all of these things because I've never been that type of person. But I can also recognise the difference between uh, healthy striving and maladaptive striving. And that's only because I've given myself that time and space to, to notice the difference. So I think that that's really important. But one of the things that you mentioned at the start of the podcast, Sarah, was 
aside from low energy availability and you know increasing weight there's also an association with macronutrient intake and in HA so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that so when we talk about low energy availability there's actually an equation that we're thinking about right so your energy intake minus your energy expenditure gives us your overall energy availability and any dietitians out there will know this equation because uh, we're looking at how much energy you have left over and it's measured in uh, calories per kilo of fat-free mass. We're looking at mm -hmm. how much is left over and making sure that it is enough for your body, especially important for really active individuals. And so we want to make sure that number is greater than or equal to 45 calories per kilo of fat-free mass. Now, we're not going to sit and measure people's body fat percentages, but we're going to make best guesstimates around what a person needs, unless you're an athlete, in which case this might be done for you. But this is giving us how much extra energy over and above what you're expending through either structured exercise, your occupation, incidental movement, do we need to be giving you, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the people who have been in the HA world have probably heard the number, you need to have 2,500 calories. Mm. Well, that number might not be the right number for everyone. Mm. Uh, in my experience, some people need a whole lot more. And we also need to think about from, like I said, a macronutrient perspective, it's not actually just how many calories you're taking in. It's the timing of those calories. It's obviously how much fiber you're taking in, how much protein you're having, how much carbs, how much fat, right? Because if you're like, I have 2,500 calories, but it's coming from like protein and vegetables. First of all, mm. you're probably eating a huge volume of food, mm. <laughs> but you're actually not giving your body the macronutrients it needs because those macronutrients have important cell signaling processes, carbohydrates in particular. Mm. We know that carbohydrates are associated with an increase in insulin, which is a good thing, mm. especially for our hypothalamus, which is sensing that energy and that insulin spike, which is associated with those increases of our hormone levels. So luteinizing hormone in particular, which we know if and around ovulation, that's the one that spikes to release an egg. So... It's really about kind of looking at this big picture of nutrition and maybe unlearning some unhelpful things that I guess fitness culture may have taught you. Like protein is the most important macronutrient. It is important, but we kind of need to take it off a pedestal and go all macronutrients are important, but specifically for our hypothalamus to kind of sense this energy availability, we need to be having a much, much bigger component of carbohydrates fats and protein and this is also where making sure that you have that flexible inclusive relationship with food can be really useful because if you're a person that might need to weight restore because there is again associations with BMIs and having regular ovulatory cycles again variation around that but we kind of know if a person might need to weight restore then they need to be at a much higher intake and that can be really challenging to meet if you're only trying to do it through whole unprocessed foods there is so much space in our lives for having all kinds of foods and particularly during this recovery process it can be useful to give yourself permission to eat those again so those more energy dense foods like you know instead of having i don't know a black coffee and an apple you're focusing yeah. on like how can i have like a milky coffee and maybe i'm going to have like some toast with peanut butter on it or i'm going to get some banana bread from the cafe and that's actually going to be my healthiest option right now because i have high energy demands and this is mm. what my body requires mm, for sure and there's definitely a, a positive correlation between carbohydrate intake and thyroid hormones as well very much so. Yeah. Yep. yep. And we know that thyroid hormones, you know, we can see that they can sometimes become stressed with too much dieting. So we're taking a huge kind of look at those numbers when a person comes in and saying, 
when you change your nutrition, this will improve as a result yeah, of that. Definitely. And I, I imagine one of the struggles that women probably have if they take that approach where it's like, okay, well, I'm open to increasing my calorie intake, but only through quote unquote clean foods. They end up having a lot of fiber. So they're probably going to get a lot of GI upset, but they probably will also, you know, one thing I see a lot with women who have, that I work with, who have finished a fat loss diet, a fat loss phase, and then they're back at maintenance. So like, I'm just really struggling to hit those calories. And it's like, yeah, because you still have the dieters mindset. And this is the time where you're changing up that chain, that, that lean chicken breast for some salmon, and you're changing up the non-starchy carbohydrates being your vegetables for more starchy carbohydrates. And so it's probably going to limit them if they have a goal of say 2,500 and above calories to just do that in a clean sort of fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also knowing that regardless of what phase of life you're in or what your goals may be, that all foods can fit and that even beyond this recovery process, you'll be able to have these really enjoyable foods. But if you've not had them for a significant period of time and you just reintroduce them, there's always this period of, I guess, habituation where you might want them more frequently or in higher volumes. And that's completely normal. It doesn't make you someone that's greedy or overeating, but you're just learning to normalize those foods in your diet. And that can be also, I guess, a really anxiety provoking process. So having that reassurance and guidance that this is a normal part of it. And eventually you'll get to a point where a cookie is just a cookie and it no longer has an emotional hold on you. And you're not thinking about it. It's not burning a hole in your brain because there's a box in the cupboard mm. that you'll be able to kind of go, it's there. I can have it if I want it or not, and I can move on with the rest of my day. But if you've been in a very restrictive mindset, that can take a while to become your reality. It takes, you know, gentle exposure. Mm, yeah, and I, yeah, I love that you've named that because outside of HIN, you know, recovery from disordered eating, it's like when you look at people who have just come off of the back end of a fat loss phase, it's, you have to understand what your body's trying to do for you. And like you said at the start of this podcast, your body is very resilient and it's always trying to find a way to survive and thank the Lord that it does that. But one of the ways in which it does that is it increases that desire for highly palatable foods because if you think about it, well, if I can get you to eat this, I'm going to get more energy and I'm going to be able to live for longer, right? But I think that people associate that with a lack of willpower or that they're lazy or that they're gluttonous. And it's like, no, this is just your body be doing what it's supposed to do physiologically. And the more that you kind of put those foods to the side or you try not to eat them, the more that desire is kind of there. And I'm not saying to go and eat as many of them as you can, as fast as you can, but just understanding that it's not a you thing, it's a physiological thing. And it's okay to be primed toward those types of foods. And eventually, as you said, you can only eat so much chocolate before you kind of feel like I don't really want to eat any chocolate. <laughs> You're never just yeah. going to yeah. um, It does lose its desirability for sure. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest fears people have surrounding that is this quote unquote, I'll just lose control and mm. my weight will exponentially go higher. And that is just the way that it's going to be. So I won't actually allow myself to have any of these foods and that's not the case. Your body isn't going to, if you think about it, I don't always run this experiment for people. I'm like, okay, imagine your favorite food. Let's take donuts. Imagine I gave you a box of, I don't know, 12 donuts. And I said, you can have as many as you want, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they will just, as soon as they're finished, a new box will reappear at your door, right? How do you think you're going to feel on the first day? You'll probably be like so excited to eat the donuts and they'll taste delicious and you'll have a few as you desire and then you'll have some other food and then you'll wake up the next day and maybe you'll have more, right? Mm. And as the day goes on, remember this, this box of donuts constantly replenishes at your door. How you feel on day one and day two is probably very, very different to how you're going to feel on day seven, day 10, day 14. Eventually you're like, all I want is an apple. Yes. Or, all I want is salmon, veggies, and rice. 
you're going to get to a point where you don't want these foods, but you have to recognize that if you are creating like mental or physical restriction around them, that's all your brain is going to want to focus on. Mm, for sure. It's kind of like, you know, when you go on a holiday and you're really excited for all of the foods and then by like the seventh day, you're just like, I just want to go home to my kitchen where I have my normal food and I cannot look at pasta anymore and I don't want all of these things. And it's 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 a really great sort of analogy to help you realize that at first it's super exciting and fun and desirable, but at some point everything becomes a little bit tedious. So yeah. Agree for sure. Um, but I think that that's been this has been really helpful, Sarah. So I'd love for you to just you know share you, you shared at the start where people can kind of find you mostly on Instagram, but you know, just talk us through uh, your coaching, what you do provide to women, your programs, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Amazing. So like I mentioned before, the best way to find me is by searching my name, Sarah Liz King. My website's the same, sarahlizking.com. Um, I primarily offer one-to-one -one and group coaching for hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery and disordered eating recovery as well. So our main mission is to help women kind of unlearn that culture beliefs that are holding them back from having that peaceful relationship with food and exercise and their body and obviously having healthy menstrual cycles so they can be strong and have that vitality for the rest of their lives. So you can search all of our programs on my website so recover and thrive is our one-to-one -one coaching program healing ha is our group coaching program for hypothalamic amenorrhea amenorrhea recovery um and i also host a podcast it's called holistic health radio all things ha and ed recovery if you want to have a listen there um i am on other social media platforms but instagram is my main one if you want to connect i'm always checking my dms if you want to send me a message as well Amazing. Are you on TikTok? I am on TikTok. I'm slowly learning the ropes. I feel like I definitely feel my age on TikTok. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not up with the cool kids. Yeah, I'm like I cannot dance and I am yeah, I, I definitely feel in my 30s on TikTok. So I don't yeah. do very either, but amazing. And I have a final question for you. Are you were you born in Australia? I was born in America. Yeah. Ah, yep, yep. I was like getting hints of little bits of, and I'm like, is that like British? Is that? <laughs> I got the the little hint. So, did you move here when you were little, or? I moved here. So I was born in San Diego, Southern California. I grew up there until I was 14, and then I moved to Australia with my family, and I have lived here ever since. But I just spent a weekend with my American cousin and all of his co-workers, which might be why that American <laughs> twang is a little bit stronger, but it does ebb and flow for, for sure. Yeah, yeah, because there's definitely like a lot of Australian in there, but I do get like those twings. So I was like, and I, I know that a lot of people <laughs> kind of go back home you know I've worked as a nurse with a lot of people from the UK and they very much have an Australian accent but then they come back from you know vacation or whatever they call it holidays and they've that it's kind of like there again so yeah, yeah I I see that and I didn't know that about you I thought that you were Australian yeah I'm a dual citizen don't know why I hold on to my American citizenship right now but I am a dual citizen very very lucky to call Australia home in particular Sydney we live in a paradise. Oh, for sure. Um, Sydney is the best. I recently moved up to the border of the Gold Coast and New South Wales. So it wasn't quite on the Gold Coast, but we sort of moved up there as a family and we lasted three months because Sydney is just so beautiful. And we're, we're a little bit further down south. Uh, we're in Jerangong. Do you know where that is? Yeah, I love Jerangong. Yes, it's amazing, south coast. So... I agree. Sydney is definitely a hard place to leave. But thank you so much for your time. Everyone, please do go and check out Sarah's Instagram, Wealth of Knowledge. And of course, if, you know, HA is something that you are struggling with, I would highly recommend that you check her out. Um, and thank you for your time. So great chatting to you.